Okay, for the lesson this morning, if you have a Bible handy and you want to turn and follow along, we're going to look at just one, really one verse from Matthew chapter 1, and then we'll spend the rest of our time in Matthew chapter 2. Many years ago, I attended church with a guy named Bob. When I met Bob, Bob was kind of at the the last, I guess you could call it, chapter of his life. He had already retired from his career, and he was spending a lot of his time doing mission work. Bob loved going to West Africa, and he would travel with missionaries, and they would church, plant churches, and they would uh, really preach the gospel to anybody who would listen. That was Bob's passion. That's what he loved doing. Well, towards the very end of Bob's life, he was diagnosed with cancer, and he was very sick, and the doctors didn't give him much time to live. And around the time that Bob was diagnosed with cancer, uh, me and my wife, uh, we were getting ready to move to Africa. And one Sunday at church, uh, I preached a sermon on the Great Commission from Matthew chapter 28, to go and make disciples of all nations. And I talked about how we were moving to Africa and our plan was to make disciples out of street kids, and I share the strategy of how we're going to do it and the passion and the heart behind it. Well, I noticed that Sunday that Bob was at church, but at this point he was very weak. He was on a walker, and he went and he stood in the back, and he was leaned over on his walker. And I found out later that Bob wasn't even supposed to be at church that Sunday. The doctor had told him to stay home and not go in public places because his immune system was so weak, but he was determined to come to church anyways. After I got done preaching, I walked towards the back, and Bob grabbed me by the arm, and he pulled me in close because his voice was kind of weak. He pulled me in so I could hear him, and he said, I'm with you all the way. I'm with you all the way. And that was the last words exchanged with Bob because he died later on that week. So it was very meaningful to me because that was the last thing he said to me. It was also meaningful to me, and it really was kind of burned in my mind, not just because he said, I'm with you, like I'm with you in spirit, but because Bob had lived that out. They weren't just words. The years prior to that, that I had known Bob, he spent time investing in me. When he would teach classes or develop a lesson, he would come share it with me. He tried to mentor me. Uh, He took me to lunch when we could go together, and we spent time together So when Bob said, I'm with you all the way, I knew he really meant it because he had really backed that up with actions. I'm with you all the way. To be with somebody requires presence. It requires you to be fully present with someone. It requires time, spending time with someone. It requires a listening ear, maybe eye contact, maybe shared experiences. And if you're going to be with someone in a mentor role, then it probably requires experience. Like you've been through whatever the person you're mentoring has gone through. You've been through it before and you can identify with them. So I think about this word with, which some theologians have said before, that may be the most important word in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 1, when Matthew is telling us his version of the birth of Christ, Uh, The angel tells Joseph to name him Jesus because he's going to save the people from their sins. And then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, in order to fulfill uh, prophecy from the Old Testament, another name ascribed to Jesus is Emmanuel. You remember? Do you know what Emmanuel means? Well, Matthew tells us in parentheses there, it says, Emmanuel means God with us. 
This is the incarnation. When people talk about Christmas and they talk about Jesus, this is the birth of Christ is the beginning of the incarnation, the beginning of God being with us, which is such an unfathomable thing to think about. How do you really grasp the concept of God being with us? Well, now we're going to move over to Matthew chapter 2, and I think what we see in Matthew chapter 2, especially the second half of Matthew 2, are the implications of what God with us really means, the full implications of it. A quick review, last week we looked at the first 12 verses. We have these wise men that have traveled from the east to come see the baby that is born king of the Jews. And you see this collision of two kingdoms between King Herod, who was the physical, like earthly king of the Jews, and then Jesus, who has been born in Bethlehem. And these wise men, finally, they follow the star, they find Jesus at this house in Bethlehem, and they worship him, and they give him these extravagant gifts. And it's kind of this bright, peaceful, glorious scene. But the text we're focusing on today, verse 13 through 23, the tone changes very quickly. And right now I'm going to pass it on to Jimmy McMahon, and he's going to read to us Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 23. And as we read it, as we go through this sermon, I want you to think about God with us. And what does that really mean? What are the implications of that? Good morning, Pine Tree. Our scripture reading today will be Matthew 2, 13 through 23. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went to the town of Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. All right, thank you, Jimmy, for reading our main passage for us today. In Matthew 2, 13 through 23, there's three main sections. There's the escape to Egypt, there's Herod's massacre, and then there is the return from Egypt. And think about everything that Jimmy just read for us. And think about that term, Emmanuel, God with us. Where, where do we see, how do we see the implications of God with us in this text? It made me think of this guy. This is a picture of a guy named King Abdullah II. He is the king of Jordan. He has been since 1999. 
And King Abdullah II has a very unorthodox approach to, to get to know the people that he has authority over, the people that he rules. And often, King Abdullah II has this, he's been known to kind of dress up like an ordinary person wearing the white robe and the, the headdress on his head, and he puts on this fake white beard, and he'll just go out in public without any protection. The first time he ever did this, he went outside in some government buildings, and he stood in long lines, and he and they, nobody knew that this was the king. And dressed up incognito with this disguise, he interacted with people as they stood in line, just to get to know them a little bit, understand their concerns, understand what's going on. And he tried it in other ways. And one day he went and visited a hospital, again, wearing his disguise, and nobody knew this was the king, and he just got to know people and how they were grieving and their pain. At one time he... He spent the day in the back of a taxi cab, and he just rode around, and when people would join him in the cab, again, in his disguise, they had no idea it's the king, he would just interact with people, get to know him a little bit. One day, he even dressed up like a television reporter and went around town interviewing people. He does all of this to understand his people, to understand what's really going on with them, to understand where they're hurting, to understand what they care about. It's pretty cool. I would say that's a very respectable and noble way to lead. It's different for most people in power, but it's a great way to lead. Now we think about Jesus, God with us, the incarnation. And this is not just Jesus putting on a disguise temporarily like the King Abdullah II. This is Jesus becoming fully like us while still remaining fully God. And before the time that Jesus could walk, or talk, or probably even crawl. Jesus was a homeless refugee with a price on his head. He had someone wanting to kill him. Uh, Jesus wasn't born in some castle. Jesus wasn't uh, born in some bubble away from all the pain and the suffering of the world. Nope. He came right in the middle of all the pain and suffering. And that's what we see here in Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. And after Jesus is born, after the Magi leave... Well, all of a sudden, and really what I'm narrowing the focus on is uh, chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, is all of a sudden, Joseph has uh, this dream where the angel tells him, you got to get up and get out of here now. Go to Egypt because Herod is searching for the child to kill him or to destroy him. That's Matthew 2, verse 13. So let's kind of break it down just a little bit. First of all, the angel is telling him to escape to Egypt. Why Egypt? That's a pretty long journey from Bethlehem to Egypt. Well, one of the reasons they're going to Egypt is because it's outside of Herod's jurisdiction. Herod cannot harm him in Egypt. They can go there and lay low for a while. But another reason, probably from Matthew's vantage point, is that Egypt is connected with Jewish history, with the Israelites' story. If you remember back in the book of Exodus... They've been slaves in Egypt for a very long time, and then Moses returns to Egypt and leads them on an exodus out of there. Now Jesus goes to Egypt for a temporary time, and he's going to leave Egypt. And so one of the parallels, one of the things I think that Matthew is trying to show us with this connection with Egypt is that Jesus is the new and greater Moses, and he is leading a new exodus. And the angel tells Joseph that Herod is searching for the child to kill him. We talked a little bit about Herod last week, 
Herod the Great is what he's known as historically. And I won't go back into all the details of what I shared about Herod, but I will remind you that with his power, he was paranoid. And if anybody ever threatened his power, he would kill them, even members of his own family. So Herod attempting to kill Jesus, who's just a baby, well, that just kind of falls right into the type of person that Herod was. And again, he's a very dangerous man. He's attempting to kill Jesus. Jesus was born in a time of trouble and tension and fear and violence. In verse 14, Joseph obeys what the angel tells him to do, and we're told that they got up and they left to go to Egypt. They escaped to go to Egypt during the night. Notice that little detail there in Matthew 2, verse 14. The fact that they're going during the dark night, not during the day, they didn't take their time to pack their belongings and then leave. They get up and they escape Bethlehem and head towards Egypt during the night and they go immediately because they're in danger. This shows us that this is a close call. That Herod was on his way, his soldiers were on their way to kill, to seek, and destroy, and they had to get out of there in the middle of the night. Maybe the best way to understand the tension that was going on here is if you've ever had a close call yourself. If you've ever had somebody searching, seeking you out, trying to destroy you, then maybe you can identify with what Jesus was going through here. I had something like that happen to me in my life when I was a youth minister. I had somebody wanting to take me out. It all started one year when we were getting ready to go on our biggest trip of the year to our church camp. And two days before we left to go to camp, we went to go make sure everything was working right on our big people mover church bus that could travel with about 33 people, and the bus wouldn't start. So right two days before our biggest event, we had a scramble, and what we did was we, we borrowed two 15-passenger vans from other churches. Now, we had our own 15-passenger van, but it was notorious for breaking down. We called it Old Blue. Uh, it was old, and it didn't work very well, so we decided we would take that van. We had a volunteer, a guy named Mike. He would drive the van, and we would carry everybody's luggage on Old Blue. Well, on the way to camp, it was about a six-hour drive. It turned into about a nine-and-a-half-hour drive because twice Old Blue broke down. We eventually made it to camp, and we were relieved to finally be there. Had a great week, about six days at camp, and then it was time to come home. And I was dreading coming home because I was afraid it was going to be a long trip because Old Blue was going to keep breaking down. And that's what happened. Every time we stopped to go to the bathroom, every time we stopped to get food, we had a problem with Old Blue. Now, thankfully, Mike, the volunteer who was with us, who was driving Old Blue, uh, he was kind of a self-taught mechanic. And every time we stopped, it would take about 30, 45 minutes. He would pop the hood. He would work with stuff and somehow get it going again to the next stop. And this happened every time we had a stop. And finally, we made it to Sherman, Texas, which was our last stop before heading the rest of the way home. We had a, a girl who's been picked up by her mom there. So we stopped. We met her in the parking lot. We let the kids go in, use the restroom, get a snack or whatever. And then guess what? Old Blue wasn't working. So Mike got up under the van and was trying to fix something. And he said, look, I need one part. There's an auto zone down the road. If you can run down there, buy this part for me, I can fix, us, fix it and get us going. So I hopped on the van that I was driving that was filled with teenagers, and I said, we're going to AutoZone real quick. And I backed out quickly, and as I was backing out of the van, I heard all the teenagers scream, watch out! And then it was too late. 
there was a parking spot behind me with three motorcycles in it. And one of the motorcycles was sticking out. And with the back of the van, as I was backing out, I hit the motorcycle. Thankfully, nobody was on it. So I pulled back in my parking spot and I ran over there. And the bike was laying on the ground and all the gasoline was dumping out of it. I tried to pick it up. And I got soaked with gasoline. I even slipped and fell. And then Mike ran over there and helped me out. We picked the motorcycle up. And we noticed that there was a little bit of damage to it. So after a, a long week and a long day of trying to travel home, now this happens. So I said, what do I do? And Mike said, I guess go in the gas station and figure out whose bike you hit. I walked into this convenience store and there's a little food court area and a lot of people were sitting there eating lunch. And I basically just made an announcement. Hey, who, who owns those three motorcycles out there? And then a group of really shady and rough looking characters over in the corner said they're ours. So I walked over to them, I explained what happened, and they said, I pointed outside, they looked out the window, and they looked at the bike that was damaged that I'd hit, and they said, that's Bulldog's bike. I said, who is Bulldog? And they said, Bulldog's in the restroom right now, and he's not going to be happy. He's got a temper. So I had to wait awkwardly for about a minute, and then finally Bulldog walks out of the bathroom, and Bulldog is huge. He's about 6'5", 280 pounds. He looks like he could squash me. He looked like an NFL tight end. And I walked up to him, and I said, excuse me, sir, and I introduced myself, and I told him what happened. And you could see that he was getting angry, and he was staring me down, and he busted out the doors of the gas station, ran over, looked at his bike, and was yelling some pretty uh, profane words, and then I was standing at the door, my youth group was standing over here watching, and then this guy starts charging at me. And he is about to take me out. He is about to destroy me. That's, that was the first time I'd ever felt like somebody is gunning for me to take me out. Thankfully, right before he got to me, Mike was able to uh, see the situation and intervene and stop him and calm him down, and we were able to come to a solution. But I'll think back on that day. And I was about to be killed in front of my wife and my youth group by this guy. Thankfully, that didn't happen. But to me, that was a close call. All right, now I'm trying to share this with you because if you look at Matthew 2, 13 and 14, this is a close call. They have to escape during the night because a very dangerous man, King Herod, was looking to take Jesus out, was looking to destroy him. So I'm wanting you to see the full implications of just how crazy this situation was. And what this shows us about God with us, Emmanuel, God with us, is that God in, in God incarnate in Jesus Christ, he was all in. He wasn't like King Abdullah II who was just wearing a, a disguise temporarily. He wasn't dressed up incognito. No, he was fully human and he joined us right in the middle of pain and uncertainty and fear and violence. And he truly is God with us. And then in verse 15, they go to Egypt until Herod dies. And Herod died in 4 BC. Uh, they have to hide out for a while. They have to lay low, again, because of the danger. And Matthew tells us this fulfills Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. And the new exodus begins. And then the rest of Matthew chapter 2 is kind of sad. The second section is when Herod does come to Bethlehem. And he sends his soldiers to kill all the children two and under. 
And we're told that um, instead of singing and celebration and peaceful nativity scenes, we have mothers that are weeping and refusing to be comforted. In Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is born, we're told that the angels in heaven were singing and rejoicing. Well, in Matthew chapter 2, in Matthew's version, at this point, nobody is singing. This is very brutal. Well, after Herod dies, in the third section of Matthew chapter 2, they're told that they can come home. But when they come home, they can't go live in Judea because Herod's son, Archelaus, is now ruling in place of his father. And his son, like father like son, he's just as violent as his dad was. So they wind up living in Galilee in a town called Nazareth, which Matthew tells us that fulfills scripture. He will be called a Nazarene, which we're not real sure exactly where in the Old Testament that comes from. Maybe a combination of a few different passages. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke explains to us why they wind up in Bethlehem. Well, Matthew gives us the other perspective, why they wind up in Nazareth. But what I see when I'm asking this question, what, how do we see God with us here in Matthew chapter 2? We see that God is all in. He is truly with us. He is willing to join the pain and suffering of the world. And he knows what that's like from firsthand experience. Now, as we study a text... We want to know what it meant. Like, how do we understand it? But we don't want to just stop at head knowledge. As followers of Jesus, one of the things that we need to ask as we discover what a text means is what it meant then and what it means to us today. How can we live it out? So I want to share with you three brief examples of how I think we can reflect what we've read here today. We see that this is the incarnation, God becoming one of us, God being with us. How can we as followers of Jesus live incarnationally, be among, be with the people that God has placed in our lives? So there's three areas, family, church, and the world or the mission field. What if we started with the people right in front of us, people right in front of us, our family? What if we practice being fully present? Whether it's right now with your immediate family, over the next few weeks during Christmas, you might be... Uh, around some extended family, what if you tried being fully present with them? What if you put your phone down, put all the distractions like social media and all that away? And what if you just spent a few hours or a whole day or a whole weekend being really, truly with, fully present with your family? Start with your family and then you can kind of consider or move on to the family of believers, the church. How can you be with your church family? And I know it's kind of ironic to say that when we're not actually meeting at the building and you might be watching this at home in a living room, but how can you be with your church? How can we be the people of God who learn to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and suffer with those who are suffering? The key word being with. Well, even if we're not together in the same building, same classroom, same small groups right now, uh, one of the things I challenged you to do a few weeks ago was to stay connected and just contact 10 people each week, or text message, a phone call, a letter, an email, whatever it may be. Stay connected. What if you can be with your church family right now just by making some contacts each week? Start with your family. Start with the people in front of you. Move to the church. How can you be with your family? How can you be with your church? And then how can you be with the world? That's the third example of this. And, and I don't mean be with the world in the sense that Uh, you're becoming worldly or being like the world, but how can you be with the world in the sense of mission? 
How can we dream big here? If you think about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. He was born in the small, obscure little town, and he had a very dangerous man in Herod trying to kill him. That's where the story begins. And that child that was born there in Bethlehem changed the entire world. And as his followers, he calls us to view this world as a mission field and to be willing to try to join him in this mission to change the world. So dream big. This is about vision. If you think about what's going on in the world, what your passions are, how God has gifted you, and you see suffering in this world, people that are hurting, people that are suffering, in light of mission, how can you join some suffering and be present and be with people who are hurting and bring to them the love of Christ? Emmanuel means God with us, the incarnation. And as his followers, we can practice that, even if it's just over the next week or two, to be start with our family, be with our family, to be fully present, to be with our church and make contacts and stay connected, and to dream of how we can be with the world, to find suffering and be with those who are hurting and bring them Jesus. Emmanuel means God with us. And God is still with us today through his Holy Spirit. The King is here, the King is among us, and we are part of his kingdom. So let's join him in being kingdom bringers.